Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. Once again, let's remind ourselves of the fact that the New Testament does not teach any particular order for service. In other words, it doesn't say that you should do this first, that second, this third, and that fourth. All it says is that we should do things decently and in order. That's what it says. And so, of course, that's what we should do. Do things decently and in order. But you'll find out that down through the years, a lot of tradition and religious ideas was passed on from one generation to another. And seemingly, we got caught up into our worship services doing things in a particular way that if we didn't do them that way, then all of a sudden we're becoming sacrilegious and, and committing blasphemy. But you know, the, the Bible doesn't teach any particular structure when it comes to a, a, a worship service. As I said just the other night, I remember Paul preaching in one service one time. He just decided to go from, from morning to night, right on through the night. Then somebody decided to get out of order and fell down off fell down, got killed. Paul thought he interrupted the service, so he went and raised him up from the dead and got back to the service. That's called disorder. He figured that was disorder. Let's get it back in order. So we got things back in order and everything was okay. Pretty good service, amen? Not only is that by teaching the Word, but also by example, <laughs> that there is power in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 what we've done is somewhat changed, I guess, the religious order of our services. Getting us out of the pattern of coming in and just uh, spending the first part of the service in preliminaries, you know, singing a few songs here and there until everybody gets settled. And how many of you know that that's not what the first part of a service is for? Not just to come together and just sing a few songs here and there while everybody's getting settled. That's not what the first part of a service is for, is it? Absolutely, positively not. That's not what it's for. No. The worship part of the service is for that purpose. To worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I found out that when the attitude is that the first part of the service is just preliminaries, and so all we got to do is just get in there and just wait everybody gets settled, even though we've sung songs, then what happens is we get caught up in singing ritualistically. And we don't really truly worship the Father. And so we want to break away from that. We want to spend that time of, of singing in true worship and in true praise of the Father when He has our undivided attention. And we're entering into the realm of the Spirit to truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in the Scripture, we see that's what the Father's looking for. Look at verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshipers, true worshipers, say it with me, I am a true worshiper of God. For I worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, that's what the Bible teaches us. Jesus said it Himself. I know, it's in red. I learned that in Bible school. He is seeking true worshipers to worship Him in spirit. And in truth, and the hour has come, and now is. Jesus said so. Well, that hour hasn't changed, has it? No, it hasn't. He's still looking for true worshipers. For those who worship in spirit and truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. Say it with me. God is a spirit. Not a soul. Not a body. God, my Father, is a spirit. Okay. The Bible says that we've been made in the likeness and the image of God, doesn't it? Now, we have souls, we live in bodies, but man is an eternal spirit being. We are eternal spirit beings. Say it with me. I am a spirit. I have a soul. I live in a body. I am made in the likeness and image of God. God is a spirit. I am a spirit. My contact with Him is in the spirit. And see, that's the truth. That is the truth. Our contact with the Father God then is in the spiritual realm, in the realm of the Spirit, 
It is not in the emotional realm. It is not in the physical realm. It is in the spiritual realm. This is the reason why we lack when it comes to experiencing reality with God. Many will try to contact Him in the emotional or physical realm, and they can't do that. That's an impossible situation. It's a possibility. We cannot do that. We are spirit beings. We must contact Him with our spirit. If we try to contact Him with the emotion or with the physical part of of our being, then we're going to fall short. And we're not going to have reality with God. That attitude will give birth to religion and tradition. That's a nugget. Make note of that. Not giving ourselves over unto spiritual things will cause us to enter into religious tradition and not reality. See, we can go through the motions mechanically, ritualistically, but if we don't have contact spiritually with God, then we end up entering into religious tradition. Doing things mechanically, doing things ritualistically. Now, we said, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, we are as spirit beings to serve God with our spirit. And according to this scripture, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not the physical or the emotional part, but it's the spiritual part of man that serves God and worships God. We worship Him with our spirit. We serve Him with our spirit. Our spirit must be in vital contact with Him in order for us to experience reality. But because we've been more mind conscious and body conscious, instead of experiencing reality with God, not only us, we've seen others, many others, and for the most part, I would say the, the major part of the body of Christ has experienced religious tradition. And all that leads us into is a form of godliness without power. This is the reason for it. This is the why of it. Because, see, we truly love God, we truly want to serve God, but we're, more, we're prone to be more body conscious and mind conscious than we are spirit conscious because we've not given ourselves over to the development of the recreated human spirit. And so because we're more mind conscious and body conscious and we have greater development in along those lines and in those areas, then what we end up doing is going through the motion of it, going through the form of it, and we have our religious form. We have a form of godliness, but we don't have the power of God. In other words, we don't have reality with God. And remember this, that's all religious tradition will ever produce is a form of godliness without power. But you see, if we want to experience reality with God, then whatever we do must be motivated by the spiritual part of our being. It must flow out of our hearts from our spirit. If we're going to experience reality with God, and that's a good nugget, we are going to have to be motivated from our spirit, within our spirit. If we just sing songs ritualistically, if we just sing songs to show off our natural talents and abilities, if we just sing songs because we're entering into the emotion of it because others are singing, then all we end up having is a ritualistic singing of songs that that produces nothing more than a form of godliness without power. But if the motivational force behind our worship and praise is spiritual, it's a product of the recreated human spirit that is in vital contact and communion with the Father God, then we will not just produce religious tradition. We will produce reality with God. We'll go through the same form. You see that? We could have two individuals standing side by side. One singing the same song the other is. One doing it from his emotion or with his natural talents and abilities. The other one may not have as a good voice, but singing from the heart, from the spirit. One is in vital contact and communion with God and experiences reality, the reality of His presence, of His power, of His almightiness, of His glory, of His might, of His ability, of His strength, and is affected by that presence. Well, the other just may say, well, I just sang songs, nothing big went on. In the same atmosphere, in the same place, one makes contact, but the other one doesn't, but they both did the same thing. 
And the reason why one has reality and one doesn't is because one's coming from the Spirit. The other mo- motivational force is just either emotion or just the use of my natural talent. Just, just go with the flow, so to speak. So if we want to experience the glory of God and the power of God in manifestation and have reality with God, then it's important we understand that we must have our hearts or our spirits involved in what we're doing. Now, let's just conclude the reiteration of what I've been saying. In order for us to prevent our becoming mechanical and ritualistic in our services and also in our true worship, then we must prepare ourselves before we come into this place of worship. We must establish our hearts and fix the position of our minds before we ever ever gather together like this to enter in. Now, some of us might have a long period of time to do that, but others might not have a long period of time to do that. It doesn't really matter. As long as we are aware of what we should be doing before we gather ourselves together like this and establish our hearts and fix our minds. See, if we'll do that, then we'll be guaranteed that we'll enter into the spiritual realm right from the Word go. Right from the very beginning of our service when we begin to worship God. We will enter into that realm of the Spirit where things happen. Where we have reality with God. Where spirits are saved. Where minds are delivered. Where bodies are healed. When needs are met. And God becomes involved in all the affairs of a person's life. So to avoid becoming mechanical and ritualistic in our services, in our worship, in all that we do, it's important we come prepared, number one, to give reverence to God. We're entering into this place where we're going to set ourselves apart, giving our bodies and faculty members unto Him to reverence Him, to give Him due honor and respect unto His holy name. We have to remember, that's why we're here. Also, we must come to give Him our undivided attention. God's Word teaches us that He's given us not the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound or a well-disciplined mind. It involves the heart attitude and the established mind also, the fixed mind, our minds being in a fixed position. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to allow my mind to wander off into another direction. I'm going to set my focus and attention upon Him, His majesty, His holiness, His beauty, His power, His glory, and I'm going to enter into that realm with Him as an act of my will, and I refuse to be distracted no matter what happens around me. I'm going to enter into this place with Him. I'm going to put myself in my own little closet and I'm going to bless Him. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to glorify Him. I'm going to give Him my undivided attention from the beginning unto the end. Thirdly, we said we must give Him our participation. And fourthly, we said we must give Him our cooperation where we participate in what is happening and we cooperate with His Spirit as He instructs us and leads us and guides us during this time of worship and service. And I illustrated that uh, the other night, I, I'm going to share that again. I can relate to it in a, in a, it's a spiritual truth, but I can relate to it just because of being involved in athletics. When I was involved in playing football, I was well aware of the fact that not only must my body in, be in top physical condition, but I also had to have my mind fixed properly. I had to have a right mental attitude about what I was involved in. And a good coach will always psych up his players get them psyched up for that game, preparing them emotionally as well as providing that which is necessary to to prepare them physically. You go through all the practice sessions and you work hard and all that, but if your attitude is bad, if if your mental attitude is wrong, if you're down, if you have the the attitude of defeat and and you, you just see yourself as being a failure, you're not going to perform as well as you possibly can. But when your coach is out there saying, you can do it, I know you can do it. We're going to beat that team this week. We're involved in playing the teams in the, in the City Series League, and we've sometimes played the Steel Valley. We played Struthers and, and, and other teams. At that time, they were number two in the state. And, of course, we were not doing quite well at all. But they were number two in the state. We had to, we had to play them on a Friday night. Can you imagine that? They're number two in the state. We're not doing quite well at all. We had potential, but we're just down on ourselves. But I remember that the coach was beginning to tell us no matter what, what their position is, no matter what their standing is, no matter how good they appear to be, we still have ability, we still have potential, we still can get out there and play the best game that we possibly can, and we still can beat that team. And he began to talk to us and psych us up and get us psyched up for that game. And people, I remember, when I played ball, I remember, right on through that entire week, 
Practice after practice, yes, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, all your practice sessions, you're, you're building yourself up physically, but also He is psyching us up mentally, putting us in the right frame of mind, giving us a right mental attitude, a positive attitude about what we were about to do and be involved in. And it began to build from the one night to the next. The adrenaline begins to flow. You can just feel it just flowing right through you, just, just rising up on the inside of you. Finally, Friday night would come come along, Friday at school, rather, I'll start there. And I just began to think about the game. Now, my position was tailback, and I knew that, that the, well, practically 85% of the, of the plays went to the tailback. And, of course, you know, there's deep concern because you're out there and you know you've got to perform. You've got to do your best. And so you're, you're, you're preparing your mind. You're pre- you prepare yourself physically all week, but now, all of a sudden, I'm getting ready. I'm a, I'm a participant. I'm going to play in that game. I'm not just going there as a spectator. I'm certainly not the referee. I'm going there to participate in what is happening on, on that gridiron. And so I began to prepare myself even that Friday. I began to think about what was happening, about what I, what I had to do. I began to see the plays that I would run. I began to, to just, just see these things inside my heart, inside my mind. I would rehearse them. I would meditate upon them. I told you when I was just little, I've grown up a lot since then, but when I was just a little, little fellow just like that, going out there weighing in, praying in the, playing in the parochial league, just weighing in, you had to be a certain weight in order to play on that team. I never had a problem with the weigh-in. I could get myself with my uniform on, I could be soaked, I could be wet, and everything else, and I could put weights inside my pockets, and I would still make it. That's how small I was. But I'd turn around after coming out and being weighed in, I'd look at that grin, and I'd just look at that field, and I'd say, I'm going to tear you up. Just a little thing like that. I said, I'm going to tear you up. I mean, I'm just going to run all over you. Make touchdowns, et cetera, et cetera. Just a little, 11 years old, that's all. But that was the attitude I had. That was the frame of mind that I had. When I went out for that team to make that team, I told the coach, give me the ball, I'll score for you. I maintained that, you see, inside me. I maintained that as a mental attitude. Not just that I trust and rely upon my physical conditioning, but also you had to depend upon, you know, the emotional part and the spiritual part, the courageous part, the spiritual part of the, of the individual, of my being. When that Friday night came, like I said, I was just, once again, involved in preparation. I knew what I was involving myself in. And after school was out, I began to think about it with greater intensity. I'd get back to the school to get the uniform on. And you can just sense the expectation. You can just feel the adrenaline rising. You put your uniform on, you get on that bus, and, and once again, it just builds, it builds, it builds. It's, it's getting bigger, it's getting bigger, it's getting bigger. All of a sudden, you get out there on the field, you're underneath the lights, you are a participant. You know what? I always found this out to be true. I can kick the ball f- further on the field. I could run a little bit quicker on that field. I don't want to say I was motivated by fear. I had some butterflies. But I found out that the adrenaline began to flow inside such a, such a way that you could perform seemingly even better out there on that field. And then all of a sudden you're there. You're a participant. And you're about to have that ball kicked off. And I mean to tell you, you're right here. You're at a high. You're physically fit. You're emotionally fit and your courage level is up high. The adrenaline is beginning to flow and you're ready to perform. People of God, if I can do that to run a pigskin, practically to get my head tore off, certainly my shirt ripped off, and everything else, just to get out of it some sort of satisfaction that you scored a touchdown, how much more? How much more? Say those words with me. How much more? How much more should we as the children of the Most High God who come together to participate in this service of God to worship God, prepare ourselves, and if I could use the term, psych ourselves up spiritually, prepare ourselves spiritually, having the established heart, having the right mental attitude, the right frame of mind in a fixed position, that this is what I do. I'll not be distracted. And then apply ourselves with our physical bodies. And then you see, that's where it begins in spirit through soul. Then the body, praise God, and give ourselves over unto this as participants. Then anyone does just to be involved in an athletic event. Did the same thing when I ran track. Same thing when I did anything. But you see, the thing, same thing holds true here. We must view ourselves individually as participants. In other words, you have a big part to play. I have a big part to play in in this service and what God will do in this service. 
God's will can and will be done if we all would join ourselves together as parts of the body using our full energy of spirit, soul, and body in application in true worship and praise of the Father and also in the study of His Word or whatever else that goes on so that He can move mightily within our midst. He will do that if we will do our part. But you see, beloved, it's up to us. You say, well, I don't have a whole lot of time between the time I get off of work or whatever. Beloved, I just said this this morning. You know, on a Sunday morning service, on a Sunday morning service in particular, is when we should have the, the highest level of expectation. Because you know why? You know, Sunday is the day you set apart. You're coming here specifically Sunday morning to worship God. You know what? When we get up Sunday morning, all our energies should be directed toward exactly what we're going to do. We should get as ex- more excited than what I was to run that football on that field. We should get so high, the adrenaline begin to flow, spiritual adrenaline begin to flow inside of us until we get to this place and just an explosion is about to take place. I'm talking about a spiritual explosion, the glory and the power of God being exploded within our midst to accomplish the purpose of the Father's will. Turn with me, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I really believe that as long as I keep preaching along these lines, and you know, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, I believe that, that the vision will begin to grow. I believe that each person will begin to see his or her own part and place within this local body, and they'll begin to realize that they have a vital part to play, and that they are a vital body member within this assembly. And as they begin to, to, to catch that vision and apply themselves, recognizing and realizing that they can contribute to what is happening, just like that, the end, the split end, the center, the tailback, the halfback, the quarterback, and everybody else contributes to that game. Then we're going to see in our midst a body function together as God intended for it to function. And we're going to see... People working together, jointly compacted by that, whichever joint supplies. We're going to see the body edified in love, elevated to more glorious state of being. And we will begin to see God glorified and magnified within our midst. And then demonstrating himself in power, in signs and wonders, in, in glory and might, like never before. I strongly believe that. I also understand this. If I ever get off this, if I get off of it too quickly, it takes time to develop spiritual habits. It won't be long before we regress right on back into the coming together, singing the songs, going through the religious format, and then it's time to go home and eat our meal. Beloved, if there's anything worthy of our complete cooperation and participation, it is this. Entering into that realm with Him, allowing God to be God in our midst to carry out His plan, purpose, and will. Because you know why? It affects all of our lives. You never know when you'll be in that position or in that place that you need the miracle-working power of God because only that miracle-working power of God can provide your need being met. There are many bridges that man has built across the troubled waters of human life. But, beloved, there are times when you're going to face up to the fact and the reality of the fact that the bridge was not built. And there's no time to wait for man to build it. And we need the power of God active within our lives to do whatever is necessary to be done. You know, we might face a, a verdict that comes from the doctor that says, this is terminal, I can't do anything about it. We need to have the power of God in manifestation. We need to draw from that source of strength and source of supply that which is necessary to provide the healing that we need for our bodies. And this is the way to enter into that realm with Him to true worship and praise to fellowship with Him, to build confidence in Him, to build faith in Him, so that we are so adjusted to entering into that place where His power is in manifestation in a tangible way, that it will be nothing for us to use our faith in that power and channel it into the area of our need. First Corinthians, look at what it says, chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came, came not... 
with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Everyone say with me, my faith, my faith. is not to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, once again, how can we have faith in the power of God if we are not accustomed to entering into it and if we do not know what the power of God will do in our lives? How can we have faith in God's divine power to heal apart from the aid of mankind if we're not accustomed to it, if we don't know how it operates, if we don't know how to channel it, if we don't know how to generate that miracle-working power to heal? How in the world can we have faith in something that we have no knowledge about? Do you see that? This is why it is so essential that we enter into that realm with Him where His glorious power is in manifestation through worship and praise because we put ourselves in a position where we can build confidence and boldness in the power of God. Mark this down as a, as a definite nugget of truth. We can become mechanical in our life of faith and ritualistic in our life, to, uh, life of faith just as we can in our life of worship. We can become mechanical and ritualistic in our life of faith just as we can in our life of worship. And what that means is just simply this. Just as we drift away from the spiritual part of true worship and praise and regress back into religiously, ritualistically singing songs, songs that we know are good songs, but yet they're not being motivated from the heart by the Spirit, but our emotions involved in it, our physical body might be involved, but our spirit man is not. We can leave the realm of faith, which is the spiritual realm, and regress and enter back into a realm where we are speaking the right things and saying the right things, but the motivational force behind what we're saying and doing is not spiritual. It is only emotional or physical or mechanical or ritualistic. We can quote the right scriptures. We can try to act on those scriptures and might even think we are acting on those scriptures. But what we're saying and what we are doing is not being motivated by spiritual forces or spiritual power. It's motivated only by the mechanics, the emotional part of it, ritualistically. Do you know what I mean by that? Here's a good illustration. Here we have an individual who stands up and gives testimony to the fact that his child was a diabetic, was on insulin, and he got a hold of the knowledge of the Word of God, got a hold of his child, laid hands upon that child, prayed the prayer of faith. Power of God went through that child's body. The child was delivered from that. He had no longer any need for insulin. And he was perfectly sound and whole. Took him to the doctor. The doctor verified it. The child was well. Someone else stands up. Here's that testimony. Says, my child's a diabetic. I'm going to go ahead and do the same thing. The first person got a hold of the Word of God. Meditated the Word of God. Put the Word of God within the heart. Had the revelation of healing, had a good perception of how to appropriate the Word of God, how to apply the power of God in that situation. And when he called upon the power of God, the power of God was efficient, it was active, and it did the work that God intended for it to do, and his child was healed, was whole, and was made well. Where the other just heard what this other person did. Now, testimonies are good, but write it down. Testimonies can only inspire faith. They cannot produce faith. Make note of it. Testimonies are good. They can only inspire faith. They cannot produce faith. Testimonies can only inspire faith, not produce faith. They will never produce faith. They can only inspire faith. They inspire us to use our faith. But they cannot produce faith, nor can they build faith, nor are they the basis for our faith. They can't produce faith. It's not a basis for our faith. Testimonies can inspire, but not produce, build, or be a basis for our faith. Make note of that. 
This other person heard this other person's testimony, got excited about what happened to him and his child. He goes on, he tells everybody, well, I've got a child at home, I'm going to do the same thing. And he goes off, does the same identical thing, mechanically, just because he was inspired, ritualistically, copying somebody else, echoing somebody else's faith, mimicking somebody else's faith. He goes home and he tries to do the identical thing. See, what we are saying and what we are doing must be motivated by the Spirit. It must be in the realm of the Spirit, just like our true worship and praise is. Otherwise, it is mechanical and ritualistic. It might be the acknowledgement of the truth, but it is not the reality of the truth. Or it might be echoing somebody else's faith that we end up doing. And what this person did, he went, he did both. He went home, he acknowledged that with his stripes we are healed. He acknowledged that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He acknowledged that, acknowledged that himself bore our sickness and carried our pains. Went and acted the same way. See, he said what he spoke and then he did. He acted like the other fellow did. Laid hands on his child and prayed supposedly the prayer of faith. They look identical. Situations both are the same. They look identical if you're looking at them from an outward appearance. But he prayed, and when he prayed, it was only something that was a product of his emotion or of the inspiration of the moment. It was not something that he had deep inside his heart that was a byproduct of his spirit nature and the Word of God becoming alive within his spirit. And so, and this is true, beloved. He goes home, does the identical thing. We call that foolishness, not faith. We call that presumption, not faith. And in his presumption and foolishness, he denies the child the right to use the insulin, takes him off of it. The power of God was not properly appropriate in that child's life. And the child died. The child died. You know, that's why there's a danger, there's a risk at stake when you teach along these lines of faith. Because you're always aware of the fact that there will be those who don't have proper understanding, proper perception, or the the, the true revelation of how it works. You know why? Basically, because many don't want to call upon the power of God. They'll only call upon it when they're in dire need. Or they won't study the Word of God for themselves or, or, or stay before His presence, enter the realm of the Spirit with these things until it's a time of need. And then at that time of need, what is wanted is a magical wand or a formula that someone can produce or come up with that's just going to enable them to experience the same thing somebody else experiences when that person got his nose into the Word of God, studied the Word of God, opened up his heart unto God, waited before the Spirit of God until the revelation came into his heart and the perception came to his spirit and then acted upon the Word of God with the foolish assurance and confidence that God's power was actively at work and efficient at work inside that young boy's life. This person heard it in, as a testimony. And you know what? We thank God for all kinds of testimonies, but I don't give a whole lot anymore. You know why? I know that testimonies do not build faith. They, are, they don't provide a basis for faith. And I mean that. They can only inspire our faith. And when people just run off out that door and say, well, pastor did this or brother so-and-so did that, I'm going to do it too. I just want to sit back and just cry out unto God. Father, protect them from that. Because they're going to step out there in a realm of foolishness. That's not the spiritual realm. That's the emotional realm. What excited them? My testimony. What excited them? Your testimony. What are they acting on? Testimony. That's not a basis for faith. It inspires, but it doesn't produce or build faith. And it's also not a basis for faith. Let's never forget that. We can become mechanical and ritualistic in our life of faith. Look, and also those of us who have experienced miracles in our lives individually with our young people, with our children, whatever. Let me let us all understand this together, myself included. Unless we maintain an established heart and a fixed position within our minds, you know what? We'll drift back into formalism, ritualistic uses of usage of faith and mechanical use of faith. Do you know that? It doesn't mean just because you've achieved or attain to a degree of faith that you stay there automatically. If you are into jogging, if you are into weightlifting, if you're in any kind of um, conditioning, boxing, whatever the case is, you know what a, what a boxer has to do? He has to train. He has to train. He doesn't go into a fight without training. Why? He was prepared for the match before that. Why isn't he still prepared right now? Well, because when he stopped training after the match, his body regressed. It left that 
state of conditioning and it regressed back into a state of conditioning that was not proper for boxing. He got a little bit heavier, slower, etc., etc. And so he enters into conditioning so he can prepare himself emotionally and also physically so that he can endure the competition. We don't stay there automatically. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental or spiritual, we don't stay there. The secret to success in living by faith is the secret of maintenance. Maintaining an established heart and maintaining a fixed position within our mind. And if we can understand that and apply ourselves in that, then, beloved, we will prevent ourselves from becoming mechanical and ritualistic in our lives of faith. And faith will genuinely be produced from our hearts when we use God's Word. Now, what I want us to do is to look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 in connection with this and share with you that the only true basis for faith and the only true way to build faith and produce faith is for us to look at the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author means the beginning or the beginner of our faith. Faith does not begin with a testimony that somebody gives of healing. That can inspire somebody to get faith to be healed, but it cannot produce faith, nor is it a basis for faith, and it doesn't build faith. Let's never forget that. A testimony does not build faith, produce faith, or provide a basis for faith. All it does is inspires us to get what is necessary to build, produce, and have a basis for our faith. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, we're not to look at what somebody else did in God. We're not to look at somebody else's experience in God. We are to look at the author and the developer of our faith, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, uh, right hand of the throne of God. For consider him. Now, what this is saying is that Jesus is the author, the beginner, in other words, or and the developer of our faith. He is the one who authorizes our faith. He is the one that brings it into full fruition. If God has provided for us certain things, those things He has provided for us are in Christ, not in somebody else's testimony, not in what somebody else has done. They are provided for us in Christ, and as we look to Him, as we find out and discover all that God has done for us in Christ, then we are authorized to begin to believe what He has said He has done for us, and then we can expect Him to work with us to build our faith. See, this is the basis for faith. What God has done for us in Christ is the basis for our faith. It begins our faith. It is the the beginning of our faith. And as we look at those things with a steadfast look, and as the Spirit of God enables us to perceive those things and have revelation of those things, then God the Father by His Spirit will then begin to cause that faith that has begun its work within us to be perfected or to be completed or to be brought into full fruition. We can't go by what somebody else says or what somebody else does. We must go by what belongs to us in Christ. We must look to Him and then we must maintain a right heart attitude and mind, a mental attitude, so that we can maintain a life of faith that is motivated by the spirit of man, not by the emotional or the intellectual part of man. Now go on back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we want to see this with regard to what Paul was saying about our faith should be in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. And there you can preach a powerful sermon right there. Our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know how many times people, I've heard people say, well, well, God gave man this so that he can do this. Listen, people, our faith is not to be in the wisdom of men. You know what wisdom is? Man's ability to use knowledge. I'm going to say it again. Wisdom, manly wisdom, natural wisdom, human wisdom, is man's ability 
to use his perception of sense knowledge. The way things work in the natural, man has looked into the way things work in the natural by nature, whether it's in the physical body or in the makeup of the universe, he's looked into that. And in his study, he has gained facts of knowledge and perception of those facts. Wisdom is man's ability to use those facts of knowledge for his own personal gain. But the Bible says our faith is not to be in the wisdom of man or of men, but our faith is to be in the power, the miracle working power or the ability of God. That's what it's to be in. And the only way we can have faith in that miracle working power of God or the ability of God, how? How is that? I'm glad you asked. Look verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world or the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God before ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for yea, the, the deep things of God. I'm sorry, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words of which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man, the man of the senses, the carnal man, the man who is, who is ruled by his natural mind, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are, they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, God has provided for all of us certain things in Christ. For Paul said, I am preaching Christ crucified, that our faith would be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the only way we can enjoy the benefits of what He has provided for us in Christ is by faith, because the things of God are not automatic. We cannot receive the things from God automatically that He has provided for us. Although He has freely provided all these things in order for us to enjoy the benefits of all those things, we must receive those things by how? By faith. Our faith must then be in the power of the ability of God and we must receive what He has provided for us by faith. But in order to have our faith to be operative and active in the power of God, we must have, as Paul is saying here, a revelation and a spiritual perception of those things. It is not something that I just intellectually learned that with his stripes I'm healed. It is not something that I've intellectually learned that I've got long life or longevity. It's not because I've intellectually learned I'm redeemed from the curse of the law. It's not because I've intellectually learned all these benefits of God. No. It's because we have opened up our hearts and the Spirit of God has revealed to our spirit, yea, these things that have been provided for us, And as he brings us the perception of how to use our faith along all these lines, then we have spiritual force that is being activated within our lives in the realm of faith, which is in the spirit realm. And then by faith in the power of God, those things that have been provided for us are realized, are brought into reality in the realm in which we live right here. And that's why I keep saying that there is a tremendous difference. Although two people can speak the same words and do the same identical things, one being motivated by the Spirit with a perception of faith will receive a result, and the other one who is not being motivated by the Spirit, who doesn't have the perception or the revelation of what is happening in the Spirit realm, might fall short and not receive, although God has provided all things for all people. We need to be careful that we don't become mechanical and ritualistic in the things that are spiritual. We do that by leaving the spirit realm and entering into the emotional and the physical realm with the knowledge of God's Word that we have. And beloved, another thought that is very important. Our spirit life depends upon a proper perception of God's Word. It depends upon that. A proper concept of God and of His Word. Proper concept. I'm going to illustrate that to you. Here's something that I see being said over and over again. I want, I want to make clarification. Turn with me 
if you would please, to the book of Exodus chapter 23. When God speaks out and says that we have certain benefits or certain blessings, He is saying to us that I have authorized your faith. I have provided for you that which is necessary to produce a life of faith. A foundation, if you will. A basis for your belief. See, we have no basis for our belief unless God has spoken and has given us His Word. Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When God speaks and says that He has provided for us certain things, we have the right to develop a life of faith on those things and to expect the Spirit of God to assist us in building our faith life so that we can experience freely all those things that have been provided. It's in the spiritual realm that this works, which is why it requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Exodus chapter 23, just to show you what I'm talking about. Notice... Verse 25, And you shall serve the Lord your God. He shall bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young nor be bearing in the land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. Notice that he said that there are four things in Canaan's land that you can expect in your life. You can expect me to do these four things at least for you. What are they? Number one, sustenance. Number two, health. Number three, fertility. Number four, longevity. Those are four things I have provided for you in the land of promise, which is a spiritual realm, a land of promise where the benefits and the blessings of God are experienced. In other words, in reality, you can have these things. Not just mechanically, not just ritualistically, not just saying it and speaking it out and saying it over and over again. We're talking about reality with God. You can experience these things. Sustenance. I'll provide all that you need in that place. I will provide for you health and well-being so that I'll take sickness and disease away from the midst of you in reality. Fertility. No barren in land. And finally, longevity. Long life. The number of thy days I will fulfill. We have a right to believe, they had a right to believe as they entered into that land of promise that God would do those things for them because He gave them a basis for faith. It's not somebody else's testimony of long life. It's not somebody else's testimony of healing. It's not somebody else's testimony of being divinely provided with food and sustenance. It's not that. It is God speaking and saying that I offer to all or whoever will come this place in me where you can experience these things. That gives us a basis for faith to believe that those things are a part of my life or of our lives. Look at the last one, longevity. The way we believe in spirit will affect what we have out here in the natural realm. We must have spiritual insight into the things that he is saying if we're going to enjoy the benefits of what he is saying and produce a life of faith that we can build on. What does he mean by the number of thy days I will fulfill? I hear it say, being said in Christian circles, and I want to, I'm going to clarify, I want to go right from the very beginning. In the faith movement, we've heard many individuals saying that God said you can have 70 to 80 years of life. And so that we shouldn't die before the age of 70 or 80. If by reason of strength it would be 80, but if you make it to 70. And in the beginning when that was first said, and that scripture in Psalms 90 was first used, I believe initially it was used properly. But from that time to this time, it is improperly being used with regard to a person's spirit life and, of course, physical life here upon this earth. It was first stated that since in this condition, in the wilderness where these people were under a curse, cursed of God, if they, under that curse, could live to be 70 or 80 years old, 80 years of age, then we shouldn't even have it within our thinking faculties that we should die before that. But some, since that time to this time, have turned that whole thing around and said, well, if you make it just to 70, you're all right, brother. If you make it just to 70, at least you fulfill the Scriptures. But you know what, my brother and sister? That scripture in Psalm 90 is not referring to that. It's not saying that that is God's set time for man to live. His average lifespan, expected lifespan for man. 
It's not saying that. I'm going to show you something in Genesis chapter 6. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 6. Say, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? A lot. Faith is of the Spirit. When you hear things, it affects your spirit. If we copy those things, mimic those things, and keep saying those things, our spirit will be affected. And you know what? Some will actually believe to die at 70. I mean that. They'll just start speaking that out and just say, well, I'm almost 70. When I'm 70, I'll be satisfied to go home. That's affecting their spirit life. That is affecting their faith life. And you know what? Your body will respond to what you're saying. My body will respond to what I'm saying. It could shorten our lifespan. Do you realize that? In Genesis chapter 6, it came to pass, verse 1, when men began to multiply upon the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. How many? How many? Now let's go to Psalm 90 and find out if God changed that. Psalms 90. And I'm going to read to you from the Amplified Bible. It's very important. If you have yours, you might want to look at the footnote with me. But in Psalms 90, God never changed that 120 years. There's two ways you can look at that. The one, one interpretation will say, well, God was talking about uh, 120 years before the flood came. But that can't be all that true because it was 101 years before the flood came. And when the flood came, it was only 101 years that transpired. But his days upon the earth shall be 120 years, which most scholars will agree that that's, that's uh, what, what, as far as God was concerned, a, a lifespan for man. A shortened life, expected lifespan for man because he used to live to be what? 900, 800, 700 isn't that true? No, it was 950. Now look at Psalm 90 and let's look at verse nine, 8 and 9. For all our days, I'm reading from the Amplified Bible, out here in this wilderness, says Moses, are passed away in your wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told, for we adults know we are doomed to die soon without reaching Canaan. Moses is interceding. He knows God said 120. He wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote Exodus when he was talking about the number of thy days, which the number of his days, God said, shall be 120. Will I fulfill? Where? In Canaan's land. And here he's saying, we are doomed to die without reaching Canaan. And where was it that he was going to provide that length of, of years and of days? It was in Canaan's land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. Well, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. In other words, we're only living to be seventy. And if by reason of strength fourscore or eighty years, yet is their pride in additional years only labor and sorrow. For it is soon gone and we fly away. Now I want to read you the footnote in the Amplified Bible with regard to that particular passage of Scripture. This psalm is credited to Moses, who is interceding with God to remove the curse, which made it necessary for every Israelite over 20 years of age, when they rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea, to die before reaching the promised land. Moses says most of them are dying at 70 years. This number has often been mistaken as a set span of life for all mankind. It was not intended to refer to anyone except those Israelites under the curse during that particular 40 years. 70 years never has been the average span of life for humanity. When Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, had reached 130 years, he complained that he had not attained to the years of his immediate ancestors. In fact, Moses himself lived to be 120, Aaron 123, Miriam several years older, and Joshua 110. While in the millennium, a person dying at 100 will still be a child. Do you, are you getting the drift of this? Do you see what, what, what's being said? Our spirit life is affected by what we believe and by what we think. And some will only have it within them to make it to 70. And you know, when you're 35, it's some halfway there. No! When you're 60, you're halfway there. 
Can you say amen? amen. But we get to, we get to, it starts out right. In other words, for the reason of the fact that under a curse it could live to be 70 and 80. What about us? What about the ones who have entered into the land of promise? What about those who have experienced the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ? We can't become mechanical and ritualistic and we cannot echo other people's faith in what they believe. We've got to develop our own lives of faith, beloved. We've got to have accurate knowledge of what the Word of God teaches. We've got to put those truths inside our heart, expect the Spirit of God to enlarge our capacity to have this revelation of it and proper perception of it. Some will say, I don't see it that way. I know, and, and those people will go on. I can't say we all see it clearly yet. You know, what does what what the wisdom of man tell us? You know, we're, we're living to be long, older. My goodness, we are not. We're not living to be older. We've fallen short of that a long time ago. God never changed 120. That was only lamentation. He was only crying out. He was crying out because he was saying, remove this curse. We're dying at 70 and 80. It ought not to be. You said the number of our days you'll fulfill. You said 120. Moses died at 120. His natural force was not abated. His eyes did not go dim. Do you see how far removed the spirit life is from the reality that God has provided for us? Beloved, this isn't meant to, to put us down anywhere. You know what it's meant to do? Awaken us. Glory to God to awaken us so that we can recognize that God has a lot for us and we can press into this realm of the spirit and produce a life of faith. Let's not become mechanical in ritualistic in saying, yes, with the stripes I'm healed. Yes, I'm redeemed from the curse. Yes, I live to be 70. That all becomes ritualistic. It becomes a, a, a religious tradition. Even in full gospel faith circles, it becomes a tradition that has been misunderstood, a misconception that takes place and grabs a hold of the human heart. Beloved, let's, let's look at what God said individually collectively and let's act upon what God said let the spirit of God enlarge that within our hearts let's enter that realm of the spirit with him and let's keep our faith vital active energized by the spirit and not in this realm of the emotion and we're going to see this power that we're creating through true worship and praise to be channeled in such a positive way see we shouldn't stop there do we have time how much time do we have here we've got a couple of minutes here you're in Psalm 90. I want to read this now from the Amplified Bible, Psalm 91. This is how he interpreted that. Look at, no wonder Psalms 91 uh, comes after Psalm 90. God probably thought there would be some misconceived ideas there. Let's notice Psalm 91 now. That's talking about dwelling where? In the wilderness, is it not? Moses talking about dwelling in the wilderness. Talking about dwelling under the curse of God. The judgment of God, the hand of judgment of God. Well, what about Psalm 91? Now you ready for it? But he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And he'll say of the Lord, not that we're dying in the wilderness, but he's my refuge, my strength, my fortress, my God. You read right on through it, what tells us what he's going to do in Psalm 91. But look at verse, the last Couple verses, 14, 15, 16. Because you set your love upon me, I'll deliver you. I'll set you on high because you know my name. Verse 15, call upon me, I'll answer you. Be with you in trouble, deliver you and honor you. Verse 16, with long life. How old do you want to be, brother? Long. I want to be long. How about you? Long. What kind of life do you want to have on the earth? Children, obey your parents to the Lord. This is right. It'll be well with you. You live what? I had a neighbor live to be 95 years old. Didn't know anything about the word of God. Dug his garden till he was 94. Huh? 94. Didn't understand his covenant rights or privileges. 94. We can view that and say, well, if a Christian just makes it to 70, he'd be okay. What? Digging a garden. How many of you know people who are elderly in their 80s with their right frame of mind? Agile. Able to function. How many of you know people like that? Raise your hand if you do. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that all these people are born again believers. The believer has talked himself into thinking that he needs to die by the age of 70. And if he makes it, he made his struggle through life. Come on, people of God. Let's put our expectations up there where they belong. If you set it for 120, only make 110, rejoice in it. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.